And as you are seated, I would invite you to turn with me to the book of Genesis, Genesis 31. We have concluded our 10-week summer series on spiritual warfare and the armor of God, and we will now return to the book of Genesis and pick up where we left off in the springtime, Genesis 31. A pastor was walking down the street one day when he noticed a very small boy trying to press a doorbell on a house across the street. The boy wasn't very tall and the doorbell was too high for him to reach, so after watching the boy's efforts, the pastor walked across the street, stepped up behind the little boy, placed his hand kindly on the child's shoulder, and leaned over and gave the doorbell a solid ring. Crouching down to the child's level, the pastor smiled and asked, And now what, my little man? To which the boy replied, Now we run. (laughs) When I was a boy, we called that ding-dong ditching, and I may or may not have played that little game. Of course, today with video doorbells and such, it's a little more risky, right? In Genesis... 31, Jacob was on the run. But Jacob wasn't on the run because of some practical joke that he played on his neighbor, but because he was no longer welcome among Uncle Laban's household and because he longed to return home to the promised land. So from Genesis 31, I prepared a message simply titled, Jacob on the Run. Let's pray. God in heaven, we come now to your holy word to read it and to study it, to be taught by your spirit from it. Lord, we're thankful for these Old Testament narratives that record for us not just the happenings of man, but the providence of God among man. I pray, Lord, that you would go before us now as we resume our study in the book of Genesis, that you'd give us insight and understanding so that we can make application to our lives, so that we might follow you where you lead us. In Jesus' name, amen. In Genesis 30, Jacob wanted to move his family from Padan Aram in Mesopotamia back to the promised land. But Uncle Laban asked Jacob to stay, and he told Jacob to name his price. I'd like us to actually pick up in Genesis 30, beginning in verse 25. Genesis 30, verse 25, and it came to pass when Rachel had born Joseph that Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I may go to my own place and to my country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you and let me go, for you know my service which I have done for you. And Laban said to him, please stay if I have found favor in your eyes, for I have learned by experience that the Lord has blessed me for your sake. Then he said, name me your wages and I will give it. So Laban and Jacob, they negotiated some terms for Jacob to claim the undesirable speckled or streaked or striped sheep and goats from among the flock as Jacob's payment 
for serving Uncle Laban. However, over the course of time, with some selective breeding and some good management and God's help, Jacob's flocks multiplied and Jacob prospered over Laban. Look at Genesis 30, verse number 43. Thus the man, that is Jacob, became exceedingly prosperous and had large flocks, female and male servants, and camels and donkeys. And that didn't sit well among the extended Laban family, Uncle Laban and his sons, or Jacob's cousins. They were not happy about Jacob's prosperity, and their tune had changed. They no longer wanted Jacob to be around. So Jacob had a decision to make. That's number one in your notes, Jacob's decision. Jacob's decision follows, as I read now in chapter 31, beginning in verse number one. Now Jacob heard the words of Laban's sons, that is his cousins, saying, Jacob has taken away all that was our father's, and from what was our father's, he has acquired all this wealth. And Jacob saw the countenance of Laban, and indeed it was not favorable toward him as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your family, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah to the field to his flock and said to them, I see your father's countenance that it is not favorable toward me as before, but the God of my father has been with me. And you know that with all my might I have served your father. Yet your father has deceived me and changed my wages ten times, but God did not allow him to hurt me. If he said thus, the speckled shall be your wages, then all the flocks bore speckled. And if he said thus, the streaked shall be your wages, Then all the flocks bore streaked. So God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. And so Jacob here is at a point of decision. What should he do? And we've all wrestled with decisions, difficult decisions in our lives. And when one is at a point of decision, often there is a push and a pull. There is maybe something pushing you in a direction. Or perhaps there is something pulling you in a direction. For Jacob, there was both a push and a pull. For for the push, I'll, I'll call it this, Jacob had a personal concern. And the problem was that because of Jacob's prosperity, Laban and Laban's sons were jealous and resentful toward him. Jacob's prosperity had had made him a competitive threat to the extended family. So Jacob held a meeting with his two wives, verse number four, Rachel and Leah. They met not in the family tent, but out in the field where no one could overhear what was being said. And Jacob's concern was that life with Laban had become an untenable situation for Laban disliked Jacob. And Laban had been dishonest with Jacob, yet God had prospered Jacob. And so Jacob shared his personal concern here. But beyond the personal concern, perhaps that that push away, God appeared to Jacob and gave him a specific command. That's the the pull is God's specific command. We read of it in verse number three. And now again, look at verse Verse 10, I, I think we can see it here in verses 10 through 13. It happened, verse 10, at the time when the flocks conceived that I lifted my eyes and saw in a dream. Jacob's recounting to his wives, and behold, the rams which leaped upon the flocks were streaked, speckled, and gray spotted. And the angel of God spoke to me in a dream, saying, Jacob, I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes now and see all the rams which leaped upon the the flocks are streaked and speckled and gray spotted, the, the breeding that is happening there. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you had anointed the pillar and where you made a vow to me. Now arise, get out of this land and return to the land of your family. And so God is giving Jacob a pull 
by way of specific command. There are so many times I, I wish that God would appear to me. If God would just appear to me, and if he would speak to me in an audible voice, then I would know with certainty what to do. How easy would that be? But in fact, God has spoken to us in his written word. And he's given us specific commands to obey, but yet we don't find it easy. We find it often hard to obey. And I would submit to you that before we stress and obsess about God's will in so many areas of life, we commit to obeying what he's already said, what he's already spoken to us in his written word. And I submit that when we determine to obey what is revealed, we will be in a much better place to discern the decision points that he hasn't revealed to us. Look at verse 14. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, is there still any portion or inheritance for us in our father's house? That's a rhetorical question. The answer is no. Verse 15, are we not considered strangers by him? That's a rhetorical question. The answer is yes. For he has sold us and also completely consumed our money. For all these riches which God has taken from our father are really ours and our children's. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do it. And and so there's Jacob's personal concern. That's maybe the push. There's God's specific command. That's maybe the pull. But then here, Rachel and Leah's shared commitment. Their shared commitment. And I've copied for you there in the back of your notes what Henry Morris has written in his commentary in the book of Genesis. He, he says this, Rachel and Leah revealed in their words that they had long resented the way their father had essentially sold them to Jacob. He had treated them as strangers or foreigners rather than his own daughters. The exorbitant price which Jacob had paid for them, 14 years of free service to Laban, made them love Jacob but resent their father. Rather than treating his payment like a dowry to provide a financial base for his daughter's future well-being and security as should have been done, he had devoured it all himself, using it probably to build up his own holdings and had given nothing to them personally. They rightly felt that since their husband, Jacob, had been responsible for the great prosperity of their father, and since this, this was in effect what Jacob had given in order to marry them, these possessions by all rights should have come to them. Though their decision was not based on the the same high spiritual consideration as that of Jacob, they nevertheless realized it was of God and therefore had confidence that whatever God had told Jacob to do, it was the thing that should be done. They were ready to go. And so Rachel and Leah said to Jacob, Jacob, whatever God says, let's do it. And this is really a high point in the life of this dysfunctional family for they determined to do whatever God wanted them to do. And folks, that will be a high point in your life as well. When in the process of decision-making, you surrender yourself and submit yourself and say, God, thy will be done, not my own. And you purpose and determine to obey God in every case. That will be a high point for you. What about moral purity? What about financial giving? What about personal evangelism? We learned of in the the Adult Bible Fellowship Hour this morning. What about that step of obedience that you have been neglecting? Well, Jacob and Rachel and Leah purpose to move their family, but without saying goodbye. And needless to say, Laban was not happy. I'm going to call this number two, Laban's grievance. 
Laban's grievance. And it wasn't over losing his family without warning. It was over losing his gods that Rachel took with her. Look at verse 17. Verse 17. Then Jacob arose and and set his sons and his wives on camels, and he carried away all his livestock and all his possessions which he had gained, his acquired livestock which he had gained in Paden Aram, to go to his father Isaac in the land of Canaan, the promised land. Now Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel had stolen the household idols that were her father's. And Jacob stole away unknown to Laban the Syrian, and that he did not tell him that that he intended to flee. So he fled with all that he had. He arose and crossed the river and headed toward mountains of Gilead. Of all the things that the Bible could have recorded about Jacob's move, I I find it curious, noteworthy, that it tells us that Rachel stole the household idols or the gods of her father Laban. Folks, why did she do that? as she was packing to move. The the text is not explicit, but certainly implicit that Laban had taught his daughters to value his gods. And so consequently, Rachel took her childhood gods, the idols of her childhood that were yet in Laban's house. You see, maybe Laban gave lip service to his worship of Jehovah, Yet it's evident that Laban and his family worshipped other, other gods. And, and folks, our children will learn to value and to worship what is important in our homes. It doesn't matter what lip service we offer in public on Sundays. But what we treasure, what we value, what we worship in our homes through the course of the week is what will become precious to them and they will want to take it with them when they, they go. Verse 22, And Laban was told on the third day that Jacob had fled. Then he took his brethren with him and pursued him for seven days' journey, and he overtook him in the mountains of Gilead. But God had come to Laban the Syrian in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful that you speak to Jacob neither good nor bad. Now, now this reminds me of those math problems that we had to solve in school back in the day. If a red train leaves the station at 55 miles an hour, And then two hours later, if a blue train leaves the station at 65 miles an hour, how long will it take the second train to catch up with the first train if the wind is blowing from the west, right? And and we have to figure out those, those things. In this case, it took Laban seven days to catch Jacob, verse 23, meaning that Laban must have been traveling almost twice as fast as, as Jacob, for Laban traveled in uh, seven days, I'm, I'm sorry, for what Laban traveled uh, in four days took Jacob only, took Jacob seven. Am, am I saying this correctly? Look at the text. Whatever the Bible says. That's, that's what happened. And, and so Laban catches up with, with Jacob, and, and I'll call this Laban's pursuit. He pursues after Jacob, and he thought he could overtake Jacob, catch him, punish him, bring him back with all that he had. But of course, God intervened there in verse 24 and, and corrected Laban's thinking. Let's, let's look at verse 25. So Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the mountains, and Laban with his brethren pitched in the mountains of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done that you have stolen away unknown to me and carried away my daughters like captives taken with the sword? Why did you flee away secretly and steal away from me and not tell me? For I may have sent you away with joy and songs, with timbrel and harp, sure. And you did not allow me to kiss my sons and daughters. How have you done foolishly in so doing? It is in my power to do harm." 
But the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, be careful that you speak to Jacob, neither good nor bad. Verse 30, and now surely you have gone because you greatly long for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Now, initially here, I pity Laban a bit. Laban didn't even get to say goodbye. How unkind was that? How rude was that? However, at the end of verse 30, I find myself disgusted with Laban. Laban was concerned about his gods. Gods indeed. What god is a god that can be stolen? And I think that Laban knew that everything that Jacob had taken with him, his wives and his flocks and his herds and and such, belonged to Jacob. So Laban had to zero in on the gods, and he sought to find his idols, his gods, among Jacob's things. After all, that was Laban's priority. Number two, letter B, Laban's priority. Look at verse 31. Then Jacob answered and said to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I said, perhaps you would take your daughters from me by force. With whomever you find your gods, do not let them live. In the presence of all our brethren, identify what I have of yours and take it with you. For Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. And Laban went into Jacob's tent, into Leah's tent, and into the two maids' tent, but he did not find them. Then he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's tent. Now Rachel had taken the household idols and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. And Laban searched all about the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, let it not displease my Lord that I cannot rise before you for the manner of women is with me. And he searched but did not find the household idols. Shame on Rachel. She's now lying to her father to hide the idols. And for that matter, she also lied to Jacob and not revealing what she had done. Of course, we know that the whole family was a a pack of liars, right? We, We know this from the extended biblical accounts. But imagine how useless an idol is if you can steal it. And then if you have to hide it. Imagine how useless an idol is if you must guard it and protect it by sitting on it. I hope you can see the the humor in this. But sometimes, folks, we are no better for we hide away in our hearts so many idols unwilling to give them up, keeping them secret, covering them so that nobody knows who they are, where they are, what they are, and so that we can continue to enjoy them privately. But that was Laban's priority, priority. understandably, Uh, Jacob was was not happy with this whole ordeal, right? And Jacob's response here now, and forgive me for the extended reading of of the the scripture here, but it's important to to understand the, the entire picture. Verse 36, then Jacob was angry. This is his response. He rebuked Laban, and Jacob answered and said to Laban, what is my trespass, what is my sin that you have so hotly pursued me? Although you have searched all my things, what part of your household things have you found? Set here before my brethren and your brethren that they may judge between us both. These 20 years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried their young. And I have not eaten the rams of your flock. That which was torn by beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it. You required it from my hand, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was in the day... um, the, the drought consumed me and the frost by night and my sleep departed from my eyes. Thus I have been in your house 20 years. I've served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock. And you have changed my wages 10 times. Unless the God of my father, the God of Abraham, the fear of Isaac had been with me, surely now you would have, been, you would have sent me away empty-handed. 
God has been my affliction. God has seen my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. I would call this Jacob's righteous indignation. He had a a natural, understandable right to be upset or angry. And Jacob argued that any blessing that had come to Laban was a result of Jacob's labor in God's blessing. And there in the early verses 31 through 37, Jacob defended his integrity. Then in verses 38 to 41, he, he defended his character. And then in verse 42, he testified to the sovereignty of God. He was righteously angry. But keep reading with me, verse 43 to the end of the chapter. And Laban answered and said to Jacob, These daughters are my daughters. These children are my children. This flock is my flock, and all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day to these my daughters, to their children whom they have borne? Now therefore come, let us make a covenant, you and I. Let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. Then Jacob said to his brethren, Gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap. And they ate there on the heap. Laban called it Jagar Shadudutha, but Jacob called it Galid. And Laban said, This heap is a witness between you and me this day. Therefore, its name was called Galid. Also, Mizpah, because he said, May the Lord watch between me and you and me when we are absent from one another. If you afflict my daughters or if you take other wives beside my daughters, although no man is with us, see God as witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, Here is this heap and here is this pillar which I have placed between you and me. This heap is a witness and this pillar is a witness that I will not pass beyond this heap to you. And you will not pass beyond this heap and this pillar to me for harm. The God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, the God of their father judge between us. And Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. Then Jacob offered a sacrifice on the mountain and called his brethren to eat bread. And they ate bread and stayed all night on the mountain. And early in the morning Laban arose and kissed his sons and daughters and blessed them. And Laban departed and returned to his place. Letter B, Jacob's religious invocation. Religious invocation, what, what took place there. Invoking religiously and solemnly an important covenant. I'll speak of that just more in a moment with this oath and this offering, the men parted ways. But folks, we have read more than 55 verses of scripture now, Genesis 31. What does this teach us? What do we do with an Old Testament Bible story? As we've just read in Genesis 31, I, I believe it's more than simply the story of happenings in the lives of people but rather the things that were written before were written for our learning. All scripture is profitable for us so that we can look at this Old Testament narrative and understand principles of God's providential guidance and direction in the lives of people. And and I would offer you four principles to take with you by way of application this morning. Four principles. First, number one, God prompts us with circumstances. God prompts us with circumstance. Many times God will use circumstances, common circumstances, extraordinary circumstances to to prompt us in a direction. Perhaps it's a push, some life event that that pushes us along. Other times it's a pull, perhaps an opportunity that, that pulls us forward. Now here's the thing. Interpreting circumstances can be tricky. Just because I have a bad day doesn't mean I should sell my house, right? Just because I get a credit card offer in the mail doesn't mean I should spend more money. 
And so we have to be careful when looking at circumstances and interpreting circumstances. How do I interpret a circumstance as a point of God's prompting? Because circumstances alone can't always be sufficient to discern God's will. But they may prompt us. They may trigger a push or a pull. So God may prompt us with circumstances, but number two, God informs us with revelation. Jacob had direct revelation from God, from God's audible voice in verse number three and in verse number 13. And we have direct revelation from God in his written word. God's word is sufficient. It's a lamp to our feet. It's a light to our path to give us direction. Of course, the Bible doesn't tell us explicitly what car to buy or what job to take or what school to attend. But as the word of God dwells in you richly, you will find that all scripture is profitable for Correction, doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, direction, if I may add. And so I would urge you to go to the scripture and look to God's revelation to inform you. It was many years ago I was standing in the home of a man who was packing his bags to leave his wife for another woman. And it was happening while I was there. While I, that, that is, that's why I was there. She's sitting on the couch crying. He's loading up the car. And I am pleading with him not to go. He said he couldn't take it anymore. He, he didn't have to go on living with that woman. And I, I pled with him, all but physically restrained him. But he told me that he had prayed about it and he had peace. And here's the kicker. While he is committing, while he is preparing to abandon his wife and commit adultery, he had rationalized in his mind apart from the revelation of God's word. You see, circumstances he felt were pushing him. Circumstances he felt were pulling him. But he disregarded the written word of God. God informs us with revelation. And God revealed his will to Jacob in verse 3 and in verse 13. It was crystal clear. But there's another principle here, number three. God assures us with protection. God assures us with protection. If you look back at verse number 7, look there at verse 7. God did not allow Laban to hurt Jacob. Look at verse 24. God intervened and cautioned Laban against harming Jacob. Look at verse 29. Laban acknowledged that he could hurt Jacob. It's in my power to do you harm. But God, of course, restrained him. Finally, there in verse 42, Jacob acknowledged that God had been with him, preserving and protecting him from Laban. Folks, if you are doing what God wants you to do, if you are going where God wants you to go, then you can be sure of God's protection. Perhaps you've heard it said there's no safer place in the world than in the center of God's will. Have you heard that? And in points of decision making, we fear the consequences, maybe the unintended consequences of this decision or that decision. Well, if I do that, then some terrible calamity may occur. If I do that, some terrible calamity may occur. And we are bound by fear paralyzed by fear. But God assures us with protection. 
And as you are obedient in the center of God's will, you can know that he will guard and protect you. Do not fear the unknown, but trust the Lord to care for you in every station of your life. Psalm 37, verse 5, commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he will bring it to pass. Finally, then, in summation of of this entire account, Genesis 31, number four, God leads us with providence. And I know your notes will be complete, but, but don't close your Bibles just yet. Providence. Providence is God's unseen governance in the affairs of men. The unseen governance of God in the affairs of man to accomplish his will. And let me explain what's happening here at the end of the chapter. The, the treaty that is made between Jacob and Laban has been called the Mizpah blessing. Look at verse 49. Genesis 31 verse 49. May the Lord watch between you and me when we are absent from one another. Mizpah means watch. And you, you see both men distrusted each other. Yet they allowed God to govern, to supervise, to watch. And when they could no longer be in a position to keep their eye on one another because they distrusted each other and maybe they disliked each other, they entrusted to God to watch. And the boundary line that was marked there by that pillar of stones called a a witness heap, Laban called it Jagar Sadutha, which is... is, uh, his language, Jacob used the, the Hebrew Galid, verse 48. Both terms mean a, a witness, but the, the difference is that Laban, he, he spoke in the Aramaic, but then Jacob says, no, I want to call it something in the, the Hebrew. I'm a Hebrew, I'm going to call it Galid in Hebrew, and, and you see it there. And what we know of here as Galid, also Gilead, the place here of Gilead was very important in the Old Testament scripture. In fact, one commentator has explained this, and it's there on the back of your notes. This account later had great significance for Israel. God would deliver and protect Israel as he brought them back to the land from Egypt. Here, in this place, Israel would see God's victory over idols and idolaters, God's use of dreams for deliverance and protection, and the boundary by which God would keep his people apart from their enemies. Look for Gilead or Gilead all through the course of of your Bible and understand the designation here at this point. All of this became important for later is Israelite, Aramean, or Syrian relations. You see, folks, in spite of the failure of men, Laban failed royally. Jacob failed Royally and in, in different ways, God was providentially governing the affairs of men. This is a great comfort to me because at times we err in decision making or in following God's direction or obeying his command. But the comfort is this that God is providentially watching, He sees. And he will ordain and orchestrate circumstances for our good and his glory. So what do we do with this? We proceed in obedience and trust. And when we follow God's direction and guidance, we can be sure of his providential supervision over every event. There there may be conflict, there may be confusion, there may be hurt or fear, but God is guiding and we can trust him. Let's pray.
Lord, thank you for preserving this account of your people. Lord, thank you for all that you did in their lives, all that you you did in their lives to accomplish your purposes. Lord, we thank you for the same in our own lives, what you have done, what you will do, watching over, keeping your eye on us, as it were, guiding and directing. Lord, give us discernment, give us wisdom, give us judgment, give us conviction to obey and follow you. May we trust you in all these things, for I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.